Hello, friends. Glad we're together as we continue in our series, A Generous Community. I'm Colin. In our last gathering, Pastor Charles Broderson started a message he called Generous God, Generous People. Well, today, Pastor Char brings us part two of that message as he challenges us to live a life of generosity as people loved by God who so generously lavishes on us. So what does generosity look like when it comes to our finances? Well, we read in 1 Timothy 6 that for some money can be an idol, an idol that will never deliver on its promises. Not only are we to avoid this trap, but as people seeking to be transformed by God's Spirit, we should develop a posture of generosity with our finances. Why we give, how we give, and the often asked question of how much should we give are all topics Pastor Char tackles in today's message as we seek to follow Jesus' self-giving, self-sacrificial generosity. So two weeks ago, we began a mini-series that we are calling A Generous Community. As we seek uh, to be, as we often say, a Jesus-formed community on mission, we believe that an essential part of that identity and mission is this characteristic of generosity. We believe that the kind of community Jesus forms is a generous community. Because our God, he is a generous God. He is self-giving, life-giving. And everything we have, everything that is, is a gift from him. John, in his gospel, wrote, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Out of God's fullness, just this abundant overflow and we are the objects of that grace. It's incredible. Now, this simple yet profound belief in God's abundant generosity is one of the core principles shaping how disciples of Jesus understand our relationship with money and possessions. Our belief in a generous God is so intimately connected to our belief about stewardship, to our belief about abundance that it cannot be understood fully apart from the other two. But we believe that generosity is the right place for us to begin because we have each experienced firsthand God's generosity in our salvation. I love the messages translation of 1 John 3, 1. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he translates it this way. He says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. See, it is out of the abundant grace of God that salvation has come to the world. It's out of God's generosity that he has included those who were rebels, those who were far from God. He's included us in his family as heirs of his goodness, heirs of salvation. Now, for those of us who may not believe that or have not contemplated this truth, I think we have not been listening to the overall testimony of Scripture. You think about Paul, even in his letters, I think it's Titus, I'm not remembering at the moment, 
but he talks about when the kindness, when the loving kindness of our God appeared, not by works that we have done. See, Paul believes that the root of the gospel is the kindness of God. The root of the gospel is the generosity and the goodness of God. And this is actually the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. When we open up the pages of Genesis, we see a good generous God who is creating a beautiful world filled with colors and taste and textures. He creates humanity in community, in love. He creates all things for them to enjoy. You think about the testimony of Scripture, just even God's own provision for Israel the way that he abundantly provided for them. But it doesn't stop there. We even see the same generosity and goodness displayed in Jesus' teachings and his miraculous deeds. Um, Andrew Wilson was the author that pointed this out to me, but he talks about how when you look at the parables that Jesus teaches, especially the ones that are about God, God is always this picture of an individual who gives away far more than he should. God is seen as the irrepressible giver. For example, the picture of the sower or the farmer who scatters seeds so liberally that most of it doesn't even take root. Or you have the story of a king who forgives a debt of 10,000 talents. Or there was a vineyard owner who gave people far more than their work was worth. Once there was a father who gave away half his estate to a rebellious son and then gave him a feast when he came crawling back having wasted it all. Andrew Wilson remarks, it's hard to think of a parable in which a God figure features and he is not characterized by giving away far more than he should. But we also see this generous abundance in the miracles of Jesus, 150 gallons of fine wine for a single wedding, 12 baskets of leftovers after feeding 5,000 people, seven baskets of leftovers after feeding 4,000 people. Each one of Jesus' miraculous deeds are filled with God's grace and God's generosity. And the scriptures are reiterating this to us again and again and again, but of course, all of this pales in comparison with God's gift of salvation through Jesus. John writes that God gave his one-of-a-kind son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, God is not just generous. God has held nothing back from us. He has given us his most precious and prized possession, his one-of-a-kind son. Paul puts it this way, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's very way of being then can be summarized as generous. And so, really, this is just what we want to kind of marinate in as a church community. Our God is a generous God. Therefore, we believe the kind of community our God forms is a generous community. 
And we are seeking to be that generous community in the way we use our time, our money, and the resources that God has given us. Now, if you were able to be with us last week, we looked at Jesus's just incredible teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as he addresses just the human tendency toward anxiety, toward worry about our futures, about our well-being, just about the practical cares of life that each of us have, like what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear. And we saw how concern, worry, anxiety about these things keep us from being concerned about the one thing our good, generous Father in heaven asks us to do, which is to seek first his kingdom and righteousness and allow him to take care of the rest. Now, my original plan was that I would teach Matthew 6 and I would teach 1 Timothy 6. I was getting really excited about this. You ever have one of those moments, and maybe you don't if you don't regularly teach the Bible, but I flip over to 1 Timothy 6 and I'm reading it and I just realize, dang it, this is literally Paul just applying Matthew 6 to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. And I was like, shoot, what am I going to do? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to teach this Sunday? Luckily, I figured it out, right? So here in our passage that we read together, Paul is expounding on this idea, right? He is actually taking the principles that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and he is applying them directly to Timothy and the way that he's pastoring and cultivating this community in Ephesus. But Paul takes it even further. He's addressing what a destructive idol money can be for those who have it, and for those who are allured by it, pulled in by its offer of the good life. And Paul directs Timothy, really, that the only answer or cure to our, to use, or sorry, the only answer or cure for this enticing allurement of money is to use our finances in a way that undermines its allure. Only by being generous, rich in good works, using our wealth to do God's kingdom work, will we be able to undermine the idol of money and break its power over us. Now, I know that talking about idols in 2023 probably feels archaic, but let's just be clear, right? An idol is anything that you and I value more than God. That can be anything, right? One way to know it, what an idol is is to look at what we love, to look at what we trust in or center our lives around, or what we obey. I mean, that could be just a social group. That could be um, pressure from our family. That could be a vision of the good life, right? It could be any of these things. It's not just a single object or maybe a single person. Now, in my opinion, no one has been more insightful about our cultural idols than Dr. Timothy Keller. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keller writes, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
Now, we can probably see how money might be a kind of idol for some people, like, well, yeah, of course, that applies to the upper class, that applies to the elite, the 1%. Keller continues, though, he says, Jesus warns people far more about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of greed. Therefore, we should all begin with the working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it's not a problem for them. Now, Keller talks about how we must look for the real idols of our hearts underneath our surface idol. Right? Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control, generates, he says, a different set of fears and hopes. Surface idols would be things like money, spouse, children. Uh, and these are kind of channels through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. And the problem is we're often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. And so he just gives a couple of examples. Uh, the first one is money can be a way to satisfy a more foundational influence, right? Some people use money as a way to control their world and life. These types of people usually don't spend their money. They hoard it. They save it, they store it, they keep it safely saved and invested so they can feel completely safe in a chaotic and uncertain world. Now, it's hard to look at those kind of people and think, oh, look at their lifestyle, they're so greedy. You don't see it on the surface because what's going on underneath it, they are serving the idol of fear. They're serving the idol of control of their own life. Now, others want money for access to social circles to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These are usually the people we criticize when we're talking about how we use money, right? These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. You can just walk through South Coast Plaza after we're done here this morning if you want to, you know, just observe this kind of lifestyle, right? Now, other people want money because it gives them power over other people. But in each case, money functions as an idol. And yet, because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. Yet in every case, money idolatry slaves and distorts lives. Now, this probably applies to every single person in this room to some degree or another. And as Keller is saying here, this may not be like the, you know, stumbling sin of your life, the thing that you struggle with most, but it's something that we need to be aware of and fight against as Christians, especially in the culture that we live in. So what Paul warns Timothy and the congregation that he is pastoring of is that idols cannot deliver on their promises. Not only can they not deliver, but idols actually do the opposite. Listen to the way that he describes what the love of money can do. He says, it's a trap of many foolish and harmful desires. It plunges people into ruin and destruction 
it has caused many to wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Gosh, the description that Paul gives here reminds me of that passage where Jesus warns those who stumble little children that it would be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast to the depths of the sea. It is so graphic in its description. We should take it seriously, I think. So how are Timothy and God's people to avoid this allure and trap of money? Paul directs Timothy toward character. He says, but you, man of God, pursue these things, righteousness, godliness. These are the things that he points Timothy and the community there towards. He points Timothy and the community in Ephesus toward the character of God, God who richly gives us all things, and finally towards the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. This leads us, I think, to ask this question, why? The why of generosity, why should we be generous? Well, that's just what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna talk about why we should be generous, how we should be generous, what our heart posture should be, and then how much should we be generous, and then we'll close our time together. So why should we be generous? I think just teaching this passage in 1 Timothy, we should be generous and give as a spiritual discipline for our lives to counter our tendency toward greed and self-centeredness. Now, in our consumeristic culture, we are bombarded almost from the moment we're born with advertisements and other cultural messages that condition us to want and spend more and more in order to achieve the good life. Right? We come to believe our lives are measured by what we buy and what we possess. And so, you know, do we wear the latest fashions? Do we drive the sleekest cars? Do we use the most updated tech and gadgets? How many of you, like, you see the new Apple, you know, the new phone, and all of a sudden it's like, your new phone is no good, right? You know what, I've been feeling like this phone actually hasn't been working very well, right? All you need to actually do is an update. But we all do this. I remember years ago when we were living in Santa Rosa, I, like, everybody in our church loved Apple. You know, we're living in the Bay Area, right? Silicon Valley. I remember everybody get their new phones, and all of a sudden, it was like my, whole, my phone was burning a hole in my pocket, right? It was just like, I need to get the new phone. And then I would get the new phone, and you know what I would do? I'd do the same stuff I did on my old phone. It was exactly the same. But now I'm just paying much, much more money for this new phone. Like, literally, it's like, the camera now is amazing. I am a terrible photographer. But if for some reason, I'm like, oh, man, if I get that, I'm going to take amazing photos, and everybody will like my photos. You do it too, right? We've all done this. Now, I consider myself like a very like, individualist. You know, I wear all black kind of like as a sign of rebellion to fashion and all these things like that everybody else is doing. But I even find myself living in Orange County. Like, I see people, the way they live, the way they dress, and for some reason, even in my individualistic, you know, like separate self, I'm like, huh, what would that be like? Like, we're all allured in some way by the culture around us to keep up with the Joneses. We've even made up phrases about this. It affects all of us. 
So how do we push against that? If we know that we know that we know that money actually doesn't fulfill us, it doesn't actually satisfy, it won't do the thing that it says it will do for us, how do we actually put our hearts and bodies where our minds are? If we know that God alone satisfies, we know that the gospel and Jesus is all the love that we actually need, how do we bring our physical bodies, our practices, our spending habits into line with what we actually know to be true? How do we do that? Does anybody else struggle with that? Now, this isn't just for money. This is for all sorts of things in our lives. How do we do this? See, this is one of the reasons I talk so often about spiritual disciplines and practices. Because as followers of Jesus, we must not simply believe the gospel intellectually, but we must practice it and assimilate it into our character and into our lives. We all know too well. We often fail to live out to practice what we know to be true. We've all had this experience. And so spiritual disciplines are ways in which we align our hearts and bodies with what we believe. Now, because of sin, each human being has this natural propensity towards selfishness and self-preservation, though maybe not always apparent or obvious, as we just talked about. And though the gospel is the answer to our sin, our selfishness and self-preservation, that God gives us the love, comfort, security, and approval that we are all longing for and looking for, followers of Jesus must practice this truth. We must work out our salvation in order to transform our character. So this is where generosity comes in. As we practice generosity, we actually grow into generous people. I wonder what it would look like if each time we were tempted to satisfy self, to buy the new thing that we don't need, to satisfy or scratch that itch, Instead, we turned around and did something generous, self-giving, self-sacrificial for someone else. What would that look like? Not just in the world, but what would that do to my character? I'll tell you what it would do. It would transform you into somebody who is generous. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, right? Humility is not thinking less about, or excuse me, it's not thinking less about yourself. Yes, it's thinking about yourself less. Like what if it was simply that that we practiced? Thinking about ourselves less in order to think about others. See, as we turn from what is natural to our human tendency and put on godliness, put on contentment, practice the way of Jesus, it forms our character. It shapes and forms our hearts. Generosity and giving is a choice and habit we make that aligns our whole bodies with what we know to be true about God and his people. We give generously in order to grow our character into those who are truly generous. This is one way in which we go against the grain of our culture. We go against the message of our culture. We practice counterformation as God's people. 
Secondly, we should be generous and give in order to bear witness to the gospel. See, when we give and when we give sacrificially, we imitate what Jesus did for us. He gave himself for us. He sacrificed his place, his status, and wealth so we could be rescued and redeemed. And when we give, we put the life of Jesus on display for others to see, and we testify to the world that there is a greater love, a greater security, a greater power than anything or anyone in this world can offer. We undercut the idols. We, like Jesus, make that good confession. We testify to the truth to another kingdom that is not of this world and of this world's values. Years ago when we were living in Santa Rosa, uh, our church was you know, involved in doing all kinds of social work. And usually at Christmas we would do Operation Christmas Child or we would do Angel Tree. You guys are familiar with that, right? We do Operation Christmas Child here. Uh, we had a number of social workers in our church, and one you know, season, I just remember pulling one of them aside and just asking, hey, what would it look like if we were to just ask some of the social workers you work with, what do their families want for Christmas? And my, my friend Katie was like, are you kidding me? You got, we want to do that? Like, yeah, absolutely. Why not? Like, we give money all the time to these people we've never even met. What if we could do it to people in our own neighborhood, people that are actually connected in, within our community? And so anyway, we put this whole thing together. We just called it Give. And every year, we would choose about seven to ten families, and we would just go all out on blessing these families. The interesting thing is we never met a single member of these families. But what happened is when the social workers came to our offices to pick up these toys, I kid you not, you guys, these people were in tears. They could not believe that this Christian church would go all out to help them. They were telling me, you have no idea. Like, our local government never gives me what we need. Our families are in desperate need constantly. I can't get them to return my phone calls or help me in any way and you don't know any of these people, why would you care about them? And this was this incredible opportunity for us to just share the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so we joyfully do this for others. Now again, we never got to meet a single one of these family members, but we had this beautiful, deep connection with these social, works, social workers and were able to cultivate this relationship over many years. When we are generous and give, we bear witness to the gospel. It's a whole different way of living. It's a whole different set of values. It is the truth according to the way of Jesus who gave himself for us. Thirdly, we should be generous and give as an act of gratitude. Now, of course, this lines up with the gospel. All of these kind of, you know, like bleed into one another, but it, it's worth elaborating on each. So we give and generous because of all that God has given us. I'm sure you listen each week. Um, Nikki quoted this this morning. But each week as we take our offering, we say these words. With open hands, we offer back to God of all that he has given us. See, generosity and giving, we're simply acknowledging God is the source of all that we have. 
Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. That's all that we are doing in our giving. We're just recognizing, God, you have given us all of these things, and so we give back to you. Acknowledging God as a source of all that we have inspires a deep gratitude that motivates us to give back to God and to others, not out of obligation, but out of reciprocal love. Mutual, reciprocal generosity is part of any loving relationship. You know, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 116, asking this question, what shall I return to the Lord for all of his goodness to me? And then the scriptures direct us. Well, here's one thing that we can do. I will sacrifice a thank offering. That would be grain. That could be wine. That would be oil in those days. I sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. This is one way that the people of God would express their gratitude to God for all that he had given them. Fourthly, we should be generous and give as an act of worship. Again, very similar to what we're saying. It's in response to God. But in the Old Testament, the people of God gave their livestock. They gave oil, grain, wine to the Lord at the tabernacle and temple as an act of worship. Now, these gifts of worship to God were hard-earned. We need to remember that, right? They represented provision sustenance that was handed over to God to provide for those who guarded, who kept the tabernacle and temple. They were provided to care for the poorest in the land. But it was the way that the people of God said to God, God, we love you. God, we trust you. God, we obey you. See, worship is our grateful response to who God is and to all that he has done. Not only that, but we know far more of the love and grace of God than the saints of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, right, we ask this question in modern times, like, you know, so should I give a tithe, which is a tenth, right, of our income? And, but actually, if you look at um, the requirements of you know, people in the Old Testament, really it was more like 33% of their income was given to the Lord and was given over to the poor. When you consider the gleanings, when you consider the different sacrifices, the different festivals, it's actually much more than 10%. But I think the principle that we look at is that we know so much more in the New Testament. Though we're not uh, you know, commanded to give a tithe, we know so much more of the grace of God than did the saints of old. We know the gospel. We know how God has abundantly poured out his grace, generosity, and love for us as seen in the cross of Jesus. How much more generous should we be because of the grace that we have experienced? So we should be generous and give as an act of worship. Number five, we should be generous and give to participate in God's mission. Now, something that we have talked about in the past here at Calvary Costa Mesa is this idea of holy partnership. You guys remember, I think it was like a year and a half ago or something, Brian and I did a co-teaching on Psalm 85, and we also looked at, I think it was Haggai, 
specifically, but just looking at how God's ideal in Scripture is always partnership with His people. You know, we, we often think God could easily do the work that He's called us to do uh, Himself and probably do it much more sufficiently, but God in His grace and in His kindness has invited us, His children, to learn His ways, to practice His character and His habits out in the world. And so as we give and we give generously, we actually partner with God in his mission to the world. We believe that God is at work in the world. We believe that God is at work in our community. We believe that God is at work in our church family. And when we give our time, money, and resources over to do God's work, we partner in his mission to bring his kingdom to the broken, needy places of our world. You know, we pray this prayer now every Sunday, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dallas Willard had this incredible insight about this prayer. He says, when we pray this, we're actually praying to be the answer to our own prayers, right? It's not just like, okay, God, bring your kingdom. It's saying, no, God, here I am to bring your kingdom. Here is my money. Here is my time. Here are the resources that you've given me to do your kingdom work. And so when we pray this prayer, we're reminding ourselves of our responsibility to the mission of God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what this prayer is doing. It is shaping and forming our hearts and our values. Holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we should be generous and give in order to participate in God's mission. Okay, great, Charles. So we should be generous. I get it, right? Okay, how should we give, though? Because talking about this, it feels obligatory, doesn't it, a little bit, right? Maybe for some of you who've never heard a message on giving or generosity, feels super awkward. Just imagine being on this end of it. Okay, yeah, exactly, right? So Scripture is actually really clear on this. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Paul is talking to the church in Jerusalem. They've decided that they're going to give, or excuse me, to the church in Corinth. They've decided that they're going to give a gift to the church in Jerusalem. And this is how Paul instructs them to go about it. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. No one, no one has the right or the authority to look into your life and to say, you have to give this much. If a pastor ever says that to you, run for the hills. No, they have no right. You decide. You have the Spirit of God. He's working upon your heart. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, Paul says, or under compulsion. So if there is that reluctance, if there is like this, yeah, just compulsion or pressure, that is not the heart of the gospel. And Paul says, Paul says this, sorry, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, we give joyfully. What do we mean by that? Does it mean that we give with a smile on our face? No, that would be creepy and really forced for some of you, right? But joyfully and cheerfully would be in contrast to this compulsory, begrudgingly. It means that the joy of what Jesus has done for us so fills our hearts 
that it overflows from us. We don't feel under pressure or spiritual obligation, but we feel a freedom and overflowing joy to give to others. See, when the church in Jerusalem was in need, and Jordan will talk about this next Sunday, Paul did not tell heartbreaking stories, right? He didn't, you know, do like a slideshow just to show, right? Like swollen stomachs and things like that just to appeal to pity. He didn't do any of that. He didn't pressure the conscience. He didn't pressure people into giving. He simply reminded the Corinthians of the gospel, the free love, grace, and forgiveness that they had received at Jesus' expense. Give joyfully, give cheerfully. But we also give intentionally and we give regularly because since giving is an act of worship and gratitude, an outworking of the gospel and a work of counterformation in our life to our culture's values and culture's idols, it cannot be that we just give spontaneously or haphazardly. We must give regularly and intentionally as an ongoing discipline of our lives a habitual practice of the generosity of the gospel. It's this, um, you know, secular kind of work that it does. The gospel and generosity comes into our lives, it works, and it flows out of our lives to others. So we give intentionally and regularly. The Bible also says, and Paul actually picks this up even into the New Testament, that we give first fruits. Now, for all of you farmers out there, you know exactly what we're talking about, right? So, you know, sometimes like Christians use like Bible speak and it just drives me crazy because like, huh? And sometimes we do that with people that don't even, you know, never even read the Bible. So what do we mean by first fruits? First priority, that's all it means. So we don't give as an afterthought, but like Jesus said, we seek first the kingdom of God. So this begs the question, what are we about? What is of first importance and priority to us? Is it God's kingdom and his righteousness? These are the things that Jesus wants us to contemplate. These are the things that Paul wants us to wrestle with and to look deeply into our psyche, our soul about. We give intentionally and regularly. We give first priority we give in pro proportion, whoa, proportion to what we have. You cannot give what you do not have. Now, my parents tell this hilarious story, and maybe some of you had this experience. When they first got married, uh, my dad just kept giving his paycheck away to all of his bum friends. Um, and if you've ever met my dad and had any interactions with him, which many of you obviously have, my parents are incredibly generous people. And I tell you what, they have lived this way their whole lives. But there was this moment early on in their marriage where Brian and Cheryl had to have a little heart to heart. And Cheryl had to say, Brian, we have other priorities now as a married couple, and that is to provide for this family first, and then we can take care of your bum friend. So they worked it out. Brian has since learned how to better steward his resources, thank God. And my parents continue to live faithful lives of generosity. Um, yeah, I, I could tell story after story of how they have <laughs> uh, influenced my life in this way and just been a beautiful example to me of this. But just to say, the biblical teaching is that we give in proportion to what we have. Now, of course, some of us love numbers and percentages, and so the tithe or you know, giving a certain amount works for you. 
great, right? Whatever, fine. You know, decide what you're going to give and give. But the principle is this, give out of what you have. Give out of what you have. Even the story of the woman with the two mites that throws her, you know, two mites into the treasury, it says that Jesus is watching all these people just dump money into the treasury there at the temple. And then this woman walks up, she throws in two mites, and Jesus says, that woman gave more than anyone else. And you can just imagine the faces of the disciples like, say what now? What do you talk, what do you see, Jesus? He's seeing that she is giving out of what she has, but she is giving from her heart. It is a priority for her, even with what the little that she has to still seek the kingdom of God. See, it's not about the amount, it is about the heart. But if we give in a way that doesn't affect our lifestyle, are we giving from the heart? And now the last thing that I wanna cover before we close is this question, how much should we give? And we've, you know, I've already mentioned the tithe and stuff like that, but I wanna kind of approach it from a different point of view. How much is too much? Where is the line? And how do you know when you're ta- being taken advantage of? Right? I had someone ask me a similar question after second gathering last week, and it's a great question. The way it was framed to me was, I understand the value and principle of generosity, but where is the line? When am I being taken advantage of? And so I wanna just start by saying this. I think being swindled by someone is kind of a rite of passage as a Christian and especially as a Christian pastor. And if your MO is always to sniff out if you're being swindled, you probably won't cultivate the generosity of God in your life. You're like, what's the angle constantly, right? Like, that's not the heart. I I cannot tell you how many times I've had people visit our community with an unbelievable story of years of difficulty, and obstacles, but if I could just give them $50, they could access billions that are in the bank. If I could just put them up in a week, there's actually a mansion, you know, up on the hill that's waiting for them, and they, you know, will return all of this to the church and gratitude. And I'll tell you what, church, I have been swindled. Not by those stories. I have been swindled, though. And there have even been times where I have looked them in the eye and told them, I know you're not being honest with me, but I'm gonna help you anyway because this is what Jesus did for me. And I hope that underneath all those lies and all that deception, I am cutting deeper to this. I know exactly what you're doing and I will show you love and generosity anyway. I think that this should be the posture of God's people. We shouldn't be so worried about being swindled that we fail to cultivate a heart of generosity. Now, is it God's will that we constantly be swindled? No, of course not. That's not what I'm saying. But I think if our first question is, where is the line? That's not the first question that Jesus addresses. Jesus addresses our heart. Jesus addresses the gospel. He addresses God's gracious and generous provision for us. Start there, and then you'll be able to discern these other things in your own life. So in our giving, I think that this is a good, whoa, words are really weird this morning. I've like 
Yeah, all my enunciations are a little strange this morning, so you'll forgive me. Working on various accents to use from the pulpit, you know, so we'll see what happens next week. Um, in our giving, I think that this is a good rule. Remember the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. Start there. And then Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Listen to this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in all good work. I, I marvel at this passage. God says, would you use your money and your resources to do my kingdom work and let me bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in all things. It's incredible. God's just saying, look, if you partner with me, if you trust me, I'll overflow your banks. And we're not talking about bank accounts, sorry, you know, like banks of a river, right? But like, sometimes the thing we need is not money. Sometimes the thing, right, it's not a physical thing we need. But God promises all things at all times and in all places. Everything that we need. And again, this is like Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Would you just seek first the kingdom of God and allow him to take care of everything else? C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Yes, because we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, in closing, a few months back in one of our Sunday morning gatherings, I mentioned a moment in Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life while he was living at a place called Finkenwald. So uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, this is like in the midst of, you know, the forming of the Nazis and you know, their army and everything is going on. So, you know, this like nationalism is taking over Germany and it's just wild how people are being swept away in this. And so Bonhoeffer and his friends did something very intentional. They removed themselves from that and they set up at Finkenwald a community, an intentional Christian community modeled on the Sermon on the Mount. It was kind of like a new monasticism. And one day, 
he and a visiting friend were taking this long walk together and they're just talking about life and they're talking about everything that's going on in the culture and Bonhoeffer sharing with him the work that they're doing at the seminary. And at one point they come to this kind of vista, this mesa, and they're able to see the Nazi German Luftwaffe doing their, you know, air drills and all this kind of stuff. And they're seeing all of the armies doing all their trainings. And Bonhoeffer sees this kind of as a metaphor for the conversation that they've been having. And he says to his friend, see this, what we're doing at the seminary, it must be stronger than that. And this is truly the work of Christian formation. This is the work that we are engaged with here. Being disciples of Jesus who live according to a different way, a different truth, a different life, a different kingdom in this world. We may not live in Nazi Germany, but there is a powerful pull toward a certain way of life in our culture. It's the way of comfort. It's the way of individualism. It's the way of self. But our formation in the way of Jesus must be stronger than that. And so I put it to you, church, how will you do that? How will you resist the idols of our culture? I believe the only answer or cure is to use our finances in a way that undermines the values of our culture. Only by being generous, as Paul says, rich in good works, using our wealth to do God's kingdom work, will we be able to undermine the idol of money and break its power over us. So church, think deeply on the gospel. Decide how you will be generous in response to the gospel and for your formation in the way of Jesus. And remember, God loves a cheerful giver and he's able to make all grace abound to you at all times and all places so that you might have sufficiency in all things. I'll close with this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. So we who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves, resisting greed which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. Amen.